both of my grandfathers were veterans of the Second World War. That doesn't make me unique. Most people of my generation could probably say the same. Now, my grandfathers were both fortunate enough to have survived the experience, but I never got to hear their first-hand accounts of what they went through or what it was like. My grandpa Masek died before I was born, so I only got bits and pieces from what my dad passed on to me. My grandpa O'Leary lived well long enough for even my kids to have memories of him. But although he survived to tell the tale of World War II, it was a tale he had absolutely zero interest in telling. I actually had to do a report for school once where I interviewed a veteran to learn about their experience in war, and my grandfather was so unhelpful that I failed the assignment. About the only information I could get out of him was that he had served in Burma and that he never wanted any of his children or grandchildren to ever see combat firsthand. Sure, I could have found another veteran to interview instead, but even as young as I was, it felt disrespectful to do that? His war story was that war is hell and nobody should go through it, and that seemed to me as valid a take as any, even if he didn't answer any of my interview questions directly. Without diminishing my grandfather's feelings on the subject, I think we're lucky that not everybody's grandfather felt the same. It's good to know what they went through, not only to give us some perspective and appreciation for them as complete human beings, but to hopefully learn some part of history that doesn't make it into the textbooks. A lot has been said of the cinematic wizardry of today's film, that it's an unparalleled technical achievement, that its cinematography sets a new standard for the art form, but what I think informs every aspect of this film, from the writing, to the acting, to the sound, to the color grading, to that haunting score, and to that god-level camera work, to its very narrative structure, is this. It's an epic retelling of all the war stories that a young boy heard sitting on his grandfather's knee. A while back, we did a short series on World War II through a child's eyes. And on my most recent rewatch of this film, I couldn't stop thinking about that, because this is kind of World War I viewed the same way, only the kid never made it into the picture. The camera follows the action like a child hanging on every word, questioning nothing, and compounding every individual vignette into a single cohesive story. It's a near-perfect fusion of artistry and artifice, crafting a love letter to a lost generation and it brings a century-old conflict to life in a way that had never been done before. War is hell. People make films about it. And we love to talk about them. So follow the stench of the rotting horses and go through the break in the wire by the bowing chap with a marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director as we try our best not to gush too hard over Roger Deakins while we discuss Sam Mendes' Oscar-winning homage to his grandfather's war stories, Danger Close, a war film podcast. My name is Dan, and I'm here with my partners, Katie and Liam. Today, we're here to talk about a film from a few years ago, 1917. Oh, it was from more recent than that. It's from 2019. I know, but I'm saying it's not 
from 197. Never mind. I was making a joke. And, <laughs> and you stepped all over the joke. Oh, man. And I, you just don't appreciate me. I'm sorry. That's okay. You have to keep this conversation in now, though. Usually when I shit on Liam, it's like very purposeful and I'm like gearing up for it. That was not intentional. That was accidental shitting. <laughs> So this is a film from director Sam Mendes and Roger Deakins did the cinematography, which Katie's going to tell us all about in just a second. I saw this at least three times in theaters, but uh, yeah, here's Katie with our mission briefing. Critics agreed on only a few things about 1917. The acting was phenomenal. Roger Deakins is a master cinematographer and the film is about World War One. <laughs> Other than those things, there was a lot of variety in the critical response. There was more than one mention of it being a video game movie, and yes, I did the finger quotes, both excessive praise and condemnation for the one-shot aspect, and a certain level of unintelligible vitriol towards Sam Mendes and Christy Wilson Cairns' screenplay for its supposed lack of character work and understanding of World War I as a conflict. Audiences, on the other hand, loved the film, and it made a very satisfactory $380 million worldwide on its $100 million budget. While it only ended up taking home three Academy Awards for cinematography, sound mixing, and visual effects, the Academy itself lavished 10 nominations on the film during its award season. Director Sam Mendes, who got his start in feature films with the much-discussed American Beauty, based 1917 on stories told to him by his grandfather, Alfred H. Mendes, who served in the Great War but it still has a feel of a story that could have happened. I'm not particular about one-shots. They can add a lot to a film, but it can also be distracting or feel unnecessary. So before we dive into 1917 itself, let's talk about the most controversial aspect of this movie. So how do you guys feel about showy filmmaking and one-shot technique in particular? Liam, you go first. Very well. I don't have a problem with being a little extra in your filmmaking. Uh, you know what I mean? Like it's, it, oh if, if you want to put a little bit of pour some extra sauce on it, that is, that is fine with me, but it also needs to have substance or there has to be a particular reason for it. I don't have a particular love for one shots just for the sake of doing them. There, they, it has to have some kind of motivation, like any kind of blocking that you would do either in film or particularly on stage, there has to be motivation for the moves and in film where the camera is, what it's looking at and where it's going. If the camera isn't stationary, that has to have some kind of motivation or be supported in some way. That's why, you know, a lot of times I'm like, just stop fucking with the camera. Just Point it and shoot it. Well, still. Yeah, it's like you didn't need to move there. I never got that sense with this movie that it was just kind of like all flying around out there. This was obviously very purposeful. And it doesn't feel like a Michael Bay film. It doesn't feel like a Michael Bay film at all. It's in support of the storytelling. And it doesn't always have to be. It can be a thematic sort of sort of thing. It, it can be in an effort to to put the the audience into a particular mindset or put them in the room someplace to to force a, a certain perspective. But with this, I think it really was all in support of the storytelling. The camera is a a third character in this in this little 
two person band going across the, the French countryside. What do you think, Dan? Yeah, I agree with Liam. My exposure to this style or this technique is very limited. I think Birdman might be the first thing I ever saw where I was consciously aware that it was happening, probably just due to previews and promotional material, not because I was like, oh, they're doing the thing, you know, like I I just didn't have enough experience in thinking about filmmaking and production to even realize it was happening, which I think for the most part, when you're doing a one shot successfully, you're kind of trying to walk that line of the technique should enhance the storytelling like Liam's talking about, but it should also be seamless in a way that it's not in your face the whole time. And you're not constantly being reminded that they're doing a thing because otherwise it becomes distracting. I know Hitchcock did it in rope famously, but I haven't seen that film yet. So I'll have to just pay attention when I go back and watch that. You don't have to pay very close attention. Like it's pretty obvious in rope, right? It was one of the first attempts at it mm-hmm. to edit something together to look like one shot mm. and all the tricks that they use. I mean, minus the CGI stitching things together, mm-hmm. all of the tricks that they use in this are things that were attempted by Hitchcock in rope. Right. And that makes sense. I will say that just like anything else, nothing is in a vacuum and the intent of the filmmaker, I think, I mean, I talk about this all the time, but in the use of this particular technique, that matters to me a lot. So there's a difference between a filmmaker, because I I saw this referred to as a gimmick many times in either reviews Mm -hmm. or people's comments online. And I'm like, uh, I disagree because it's it's not so much that the director was, you know, him and Roger Deakins were high-fiving each other in a back room planning this going, oh, let's do it. It's going to be so cool, right? Like, that's not the way they approached it. They said... How can we shoot this in a way that is going to remind the viewer of the cyclical nature of war, of this war in particular? You know, we'll get into the themes later, but there was a lot of deeper and very mature forethought as to why they use this technique. And, you know, Sir Roger Deakins is a extremely well-established cinematographer in his 70s who only recently has won two Oscars for cinematography. He's been on that stage a million times, like over 30 times but didn't win until recently and has become a lot more famous in his older years, but he's been around a long time. I don't know if you guys have seen this in his history, but he was the cinematographer in 1984. Oh yeah. You know, he's famous for saying things uh, like teaching young cinematographers where he says, learn how to shoot a naked light bulb in a room where you move the camera around and understand how lens flare works, like what, how that light interacts with the camera. And so he's very much not about using gimmicks and not about throwing flair into things for the sake of flair. So I think that if you learn just a little bit of the way Sam Mendes approaches filmmaking and the way Roger Deakins approach filmmaking, it's very obvious to anyone who does any reading that this idea came from a good place. Now, whether you like the end result or not, or whether it distracts you is a separate question, but I think to dismiss this idea as trying to say that, oh, you're trying to just attract attention to your movie by using a gimmick is complete bullshit. And I really don't, I don't agree with that sentiment when it comes to this film. So personally, I loved it. I love the style. And I think that it does accomplish what they were trying to do, which I'll talk about in my breakdown, but yeah. So A one shot is a technique to be used like any other. I really agree with Dan that how well these techniques work are in how well you prepare for them and how well you plan and the impetus behind making that choice. And I like it when artists do that. I like it when they try new things. Like one of my favorite things about the author Stephen King is that he tries new things 
as often as possible. You know, he'll write an entire book in four short stories and publish them separately. He'll publish something online. He'll write something from this perspective or that perspective or in this way. Like he's always challenging himself to find a new and interesting way to tell a story. And I feel like Roger Deakins and Sam Mendes are both that kind of creative where it's about pushing yourself and trying to experiment with new ways to tell a story. And this is the kind of story that a one shot works with how the camera moves so gracefully, slow and gain intensity and then slow down. Like it does it so well using that one shot technique and Deacon's eye for light. The lighting in this is just beyond phenomenal. So I think I also was kind of like, okay, well, I guess if you don't like it or if you, you're, you have a cynical attitude about it, which more than one critic does, I can see why you'd be like, this is just irritating. Whereas for me, I was like, oh, I can see why you chose to do it this way. It makes sense. If I hadn't been told that this is what they were doing, I don't know how long it would have taken me to figure out that that's what they were doing with it. If I hadn't been told beforehand that they're like, oh, they made it look like one shot. It wasn't so glaringly obvious. Like, does anybody remember the first time you saw Fight Club? I do. No, no big twist reveals or anything here for like fucking 25 year old movie. <laughs> but it's like, until she says, Hey, what is your real name anyway? And then lists all of the fucked up fake names that he gave at all of those meetings until that moment, it had never occurred to me that we didn't know Edward Norton's name as a character. Right. Yes. And that's like a thing that they were doing. And you see that sometimes where you're like, you get to the end of a movie and be like, Oh fuck. That guy was just credited as man. I am Jack's complete lack of surprise in it he's credited as the narrator but you see this done in other movies that you just never quite find out sometimes it's done really to greater effect in books oh yeah oh yeah when you can't see the person so you don't know who the narrator is but it's just like a thing that yeah sure it could be a gimmick except it's not a gimmick if you didn't even realize they were doing it and i wonder how much that would have jumped out to me because I don't often notice good one shots. I agree. Like you have to go back and look at it and be like, oh shit, did they, was that all one take? Right. An actual one take is something that I think I am not on board when you push it to that extent. Like if you tried to make an actual, because there have been people who tried. There was a movie, I still haven't seen it called Russian Ark that was filmed in one take. Right. To me, that's like, okay. Then it really more, when you buy into it that much, but I could see the cuts in the movie and I knew I was like, okay, there's a cut, there's a cut, there's a cut. Like you just have these brief moments where you can make changes. You don't, you can stop your scene, make adjustments, do whatever, you know, cause I, the thing to think about, and I think this is the really fascinating thing is how a one shot is actually achieved, especially in a really complicated scene is fucking magical there's a really awesome behind the scenes of the haunting of hill house where they did a one shot in there and it's several people moving through a party and ghosts appearing in the background and it's all taking place in a very small set and they show all of the work that goes into it by there's like 20 different people in the background moving stuff around positioning things so that when it switches from one area to the next there's that continuity and I don't feel like that's conducive to necessarily great filmmaking. There is a level of diminishing returns 
depending on how long you go with it, I think. Mm -hmm. And I think they managed to go just about the right length in this. There's a couple of the scenes in the trenches where there's a lot of the camera backs up and then the camera rotates around and that's a little much sometimes, but it's so it's, I was looking for it like you, Liam, if I didn't know that I probably, I probably would have just thought, Oh, this is just really pretty. Yeah. I mean, it gives us feeling of smoothness to the story because it is constantly moving forward. There is really no rest in the storytelling or the movement of the characters. It goes from tree to tree when they wake up at the tree. And then at the end where Lance Corporal Schofield sits down at the tree and the film closes, they, you know, made it on purpose like that to be kind of a full circle thing. And it's the same tree. Right. The only gap is when he gets uh, knocked out. That's the only significant time gap in the movie. And we're experiencing it along with the character. So it's justifiable. Right. Totally. Yeah. It's it's, It's an effect even, you know, it's a purposeful choice to now the clock is even shorter. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think the key in the reason why I think all three of us think that it worked well in this film is how well it was pulled off, which all goes back to the planning and the timing of everything. Sam Mendes mentions it a couple of times. Again, I watched uh, this time around, I watched the film with his commentary. It's just, there's one version with his commentary and one with Roger Deakins. And in his commentary, he said, the land cannot be longer than the scene and the scene cannot be longer than the land. Meaning, of course, and, and you could watch the behind the scenes stuff. A lot of it is on YouTube, but uh, the longer parts are on the actual disc. Is that they had to, I mean, the actors did six months of rehearsals just to figure out the timing of all the scenes where they're walking and running and it's intermixed with dialogue. You had to make sure that all that stuff lasted exactly how long the scene needed to last because you couldn't just edit out a bit at the end. That's the real tricky part. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what the editing process exactly would be on something like this, other than obviously it's more than one person because it requires a lot of blending of VFX and a lot of specific timing. But again, you don't get to just do what I do with audio when we have a foible and we're like, oh, screw that up. Let me start over. I'll just cut that out. Like you don't cut get to Liam just- out again. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah Liam's getting out There's of hand. There's a certain level of choreography, <laughs> I think is the, is the word. So that was actually one of the one of the questions that I had, and I may have asked this on this show before, but it it still kind of boggles my mind that movies like this one uh, and Birdman don't win for editing, mm-hmm. or oftentimes don't even get nominated because it's it's more seen as a cinematography, aspect. right? It's seen as a cinematography perspective, but also at the same time, like. Is it because the edits are, are are like baked into the crust? When you're doing something like this, they have to plan where the edits are going to go in advance. So while technically it might be a masterfully done edit, but it takes the artistry out of it. I think it's more that it's such a feat cinematography wise that audiences and and academy voters and whatever tend to kind of forget the editing aspect of this because there's definitely a shit ton of amazing editing that went into this and so it's easy to say oh look it's so pretty and roger deakins did all of this film work and it all had to be shot on film it couldn't be fixed in edit and so therefore they don't necessarily appreciate the actual work that went into editing it because more than likely the editor was pretty heavily involved in 
in the planning. Deciding where those moments should be. My only thing with that is the editors themselves are the ones that do the nomination for the editing. So they should fucking get it. Yeah. I'll say that in the same way that you know that Mendez and Deacons, when they do get up there and take an Oscar, one of the first things out of their mouth, more than a lot of other people, is their modesty and Mm -hmm. how much they're going to mention everyone else that made that possible, you know, before they're bowing and saying, oh, yeah, I did such a great job, which, of course, when you get an award is the time to be modest. But I think I've listened to enough interviews, especially with Deacons, to know that that's just their nature. But I think in terms of the editing here, it does take the job that normally is mostly the work of one person working with the director or maybe a couple of people to like this teamwork concept where if anybody's out of step with what was planned, like you can't show up to the job hung over and forget what the very specific plan for shooting this scene is today, because just one little screw up, you could blow an entire eight minutes of filming. And depending on what you're shooting on a film of this scale can be extremely expensive. We'll, we'll talk about it when we get to the end scene, but they were talking about screw ups in that end scene. And basically they were like, yeah, we went into this shot and they were like, okay, we can do four takes of this over the next three or four days or whatever. And that's it. So count your mistakes and just keep it rolling. Basically the rule on set was until you heard Sam Mendes say cut, you just always kept moving. I mean, if you saw a giant splash of mud go onto the camera, you just kept going. If you fell over and had to get back up and keep running, you just kept going. Which happens in that end scene. It does. The actors were just taught no matter what to keep going. I was going to ask Liam a little bit. And did you have any thoughts about how this relates to theater? Because it's taken me years to really understand not being an actor and not being a filmmaker, the huge difference between film and TV and theater in that cinema and and TV screen acting. I heard it described this way by an actor recently is sort of trying to capture a moment because oftentimes even a two person conversation at a diner say is broken up. You have this shoulder camera view, like third person view looking at the person they're talking to. And -hmm, when the camera switches and you see the other person, you realize when you think about it, that you're like, oh, that camera is no longer over that person's shoulder. And so the more you go down that rabbit hole, you realize that, oh, this three minute conversation that is just a back and forth, let's say it's an interrogation scene, for example, has to be split up. Yet the actors have to maintain the emotion and the momentum and all of that stuff from exactly where they were. So anytime I talk about this movie, one of the things I always need to make sure I say is the only problem I have with the quote unquote gimmicky nature of the filmmaking itself is that it seems to have overshadowed everything else about the movie, including the acting and the writing and things like that, where it's people don't pay attention to what a good job these guys did in playing these roles and the acting that went into it because they were too busy being either distracted or dazzled or angry about the way the movie was shot. That's so true from the critic reviews I read. And it was just like, okay, let's move on from this. (laughs) Let's talk about the movie. We really should have gotten a lot more recognition Schofield in in particular, fucking phenomenal performance. Mm -hmm. But so with, yes, 
what you're saying, Dan, is is absolutely true. The difference with the stage acting versus screen acting, there's not just one difference. It's a completely mm-hmm. different animal. I was actually just watching a, a very old Dick Cavett interview with Ian McKellen. Oh, my God. This is from like the 70s. So still a little gray. A little gray, but he was uh, he was mostly known for his work with the Royal Shakespeare Company at this point. Right, right. But he was starting to make it into into films. And he was talking about how in film, he doesn't have to worry about what to do with his hands. And that seems to be a big thing for film actors when they get on stage, is you get on stage what to do with your hands. Because in most films, you're going to be shot from like the shoulder up. Right, especially at that time period. Yeah. You never have to worry about like what you're doing with your hands on stage. It's like one of the biggest things that you have to think about is like, okay, what am I doing with my hands in this scene? Or when I say this line, what are my hands doing? What is my body doing? Because it's all visible. You know, are you shuffling your feet? Are your feet planted? You know, like, are you shifting your weight? Like those are things that when you're on stage, you have to be absolutely conscious of. In addition to knowing all of your lines, not getting a second take, things like that. Not to say that it's harder, it's just a completely different skill set and different muscles that you're exercising. Right. right. You have to be way more obvious in theater acting, like with your facial expressions and with your body movement. Because it has to read from from a distance. Right. Whereas in film, you have to be very refined, especially as we get more and more. It depends on where the camera is. That's true. That's, That's true. So if it's like from far away then yeah, you can engage in some theatrics. If it's right close up on your face, if you think a thing, it'll read. Right. HD cameras have made, like I think, a significant difference in what counts as close and what counts as far away these days. Right. But like Dan's saying, when you have all these multiple takes that you're stitching together to make a scene, you hear people talk about you know, somebody, for instance, like Robin Williams. God love Robin Williams, but at the same time, like every take that he did was so different. Mm-hmm. Right. So from a continuity perspective, it would probably be a whole lot more difficult to construct his scenes if he was playing just opposite one other person and you're stitching those things together. It might be more difficult to put that into a scene than say when you're doing a scene with Ian Holm. Right. Who's solid well who was he was famous for every take he did was almost creepily exactly the same Mm -hmm. which is like an editor's dream because it's really easy to stitch together depending on i guess what the editor is looking for because sometimes you're like oh let's use this take because it was the best Mm -hmm. right or we got more of the emotional response we wanted in it So our research today is brought to us by Kyle, Mike, and Ben, and I'll put all of this as usual in the surplus ordinance. Kyle added a bit on runners specifically, but most of this World War I research is very well and thoroughly discussed in our, was it our third episode in They Shall Not Grow Old, which is a documentary about World War I. If you want to Go back and listen to more specifics about the new technology that emerged in World War One, the weapons, aircraft, and kind of what made World War One different and an overview of that. Go back and listen to that episode because we're not going to get so much into that here. I would rather focus 
on the specifics of the spring of 1917, this time period between the British and the Germans and what we're seeing in this film. And Ben's research brings us some insight on that. So in the time frame of the film, 1917 specifically, we've now entered the fourth summer of constant warfare. The armies were exhausted, and everyone's dreams of a quick, glorious war were now being replaced with the realities of fully industrialized modern warfare. There were 35,000 miles of trenches stretching across Europe. By contrast, they built about a mile of trench for the trench shots in this film, physically. We have tendency to look back on wars with a sense of inevitability. We know how it ends, so of course, it was always going to go this way. But at this point in time, both sides of the war could easily have broken. 1917 was a summer of French army mutinies, where French soldiers were refusing to take part in any offensive actions ordered by their leaders. Knowing the war ends in a defeat for the Central Powers, we may forget how close the Entente Powers came to breaking. Coinciding with this bottoming of morale came the German plan to move their forces to the Hindenburg Line. The Germans spent the winter of 1916-1917 building a brand new defense in depth series of trenches behind their own lines, fully prepared with concrete bunkers and pillboxes designed to withstand Entente artillery bombardments, let the advancing soldiers get to the first line of trenches and then push them back out. The plan being to put themselves in a position where the Entente would waste their remaining manpower against their new stronger defenses and force their commanders to be the ones telling their already mutinying soldiers to run into no man's land through the barbed wire and machine gun fire. While ultimately unsuccessful, this is the scenario our heroes are trying to stop a British attack in. The film kind of sets the stage immediately in opening up on an absolutely gorgeous shot of a field with two youngish men resting on the ground and then they get tapped to take a message and initially they don't know what it is they go and meet general colin firth <laughs> also known as aaron moore in in real history no it's general colin firth i love it um who gives them this terrible news that the germans have retreated from their front lines but they are waiting en masse to attack the british which are planning a giant push and it turns out one of their brothers Lieutenant Blake is going to be there. So that starts us off on what is an insanely dark, dark trip. They will have to cross no man's land, go into the German encampment, supposedly been abandoned, and find their way through hostile territory to the English forces that are, what, about nine miles away, I think they say, eight or nine miles? Mm-hmm. Communications in World War I were becoming increasingly complex and modern as the war went on. Telephones and telegraphs were in constant use, though their dependence on wires left them open to damage from artillery strikes and they were constantly breaking and severing communications. Antiquated as it may be, carrier pigeons were still in use, as they were difficult to kill with a rifle and relatively reliable in delivering messages. They were, however, a one-way-only method of communication and required care and attention. Instead, men were often tasked as runners with delivering messages in person by moving from trench line to trench line. Risking enemy rifles, machine guns, and shells, runners had an especially dangerous yet vital job as lines were rarely continuous and messages needed to be sent out at all times about critical battlefield information. While often on foot, sometimes they would ride a horse for the added mobility and speed, or later in the war, a motorcycle could be used for the same purpose. Situations like that in the film weren't far from reality, with runners risking their lives to deliver messages to those that needed them. Runners knew that they were often the only hope of a message making it to the right person, 
and though the consequences weren't always the lives of 1,600 men, often they included enemy troop movements, orders that needed to be given immediately, or other costly information that needed to be given no matter the cost. It was uh, interesting. One of the first cinematic depictions of World War One that I ever saw, does anybody remember the 90s hit television show, The Young Indiana Jones Chronicles? Oh, yeah, oh, baby. Man. Vaguely. There was a... a, a a couple episode arc where young Indy was had had signed up with the Belgian army in World War <laughs> One and acted oh as a runner just for fun. He was it, it was one of his many adventures that he was going on. Like there's there was actually a continuing plot for the most part. He fell in with this Belgian guy named Remy, and they were he he went home to go fight for Belgium, and Indy went with him. Like you do. Yeah, like you do. He was a runner and there was a, a command to make a charge on this position that was impossible to take. And he faked his own death and like destroyed the message so that the guys would not have to go. That basically they got one more day to live before they got sent out the next day. Oh my. Yeah, it was a pretty dark episode, but I, it stuck with me, obviously. So these guys are Lance Corporals, which... Dan, can you tell us what that necessarily means? Because they seem like a little o little officery rather than... No, no. These are enlisted men for sure. Oh, okay. Or is that the, just the equivalent of private? I'm not super well versed in the specific British ranks of this time. But in, in the modern Marine Corps, for example, which is somewhat similar, you have a private, private first class, Lance Corporal. So Lance Corporal is kind of the highest rank of the sort of, you could call them the simple soldiers or kind of the, the bottom rung of enlisted men. Once you go above that, you get into corporals. You're talking about non-commissioned officers. Okay. These are still enlisted men, but it's, those are the first ranks, kind of the fourth rank and above is usually when you start to get leadership responsibilities. Your direct superior is still going to be an officer, like a lieutenant, for example, but you might be in charge of three guys. So for example... The soldier who wakes them up and says, grab your kit, blah, blah, blah. He's a sergeant. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I don't know if they refer to him as sergeant, but I know that from looking him up. I believe they do. Yeah. So, yeah, they are meant to be. So they're the same rank. They're both Lance Corporals. So they're meant to be lower ranking enlisted men. And as they talk, as they're going through the trenches and they're sort of, uh, I think the script does a really good job of giving you exposition, but hiding it very well. It, it's very... It's blended very organically, and I think that was purposeful. Sam Mendes is on the record, you know, saying he was trying to, he didn't want these moments of being like, and here's some exposition, and here's the map, and here's what's happening, right? I mean, of course, right. they're, they're taking a direct order from a general, which is a big deal. So their mission is getting described, but you don't find out that Schofield fought in the Somme until later. And again, it's not this big moment. It just comes out in natural conversation between him and Blake. There's conversations about a medal that he kind of traded for wine or for something else. And they're both lower ranking guys, but Schofield is more experienced and has seen combat. Whereas Blake, you're kind of, it's unclear whether he's seen combat or not. He's more green and younger. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, so a Lance Corporal is, is essentially, okay, you can be trusted to carry stuff out by yourself and... And make your best choice. Yeah, like you didn't get out of basic training last month if you're a Lance Corporal. You might have, you know, a year in the army under your belt okay. or, or maybe two years or something. Blake hasn't seen the real shit, but he's been there long enough to know that he's hungry. 
<laughs> right. He was like, hey, did they feed us yet? Nah, nah, man, they didn't hear. Eat this bread that smells like a shoe. <laughs> yep. Yep. Exactly. They really leaned into the sort of uh, the chubby guy trope here a little bit. Or, or <laughs> he does talk about food quite a bit in the film. <laughs> he does. He does. I did not realize until after I saw this movie that he's he's from Game of Thrones. Yeah, he plays two different characters on Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Oh, who was the who was the other one? I know he's Tommen. And um, the first character he played is uh, one of the Martin Lannister. No, he was a Lannister. Okay. Yeah, so I was impressed. I thought he, uh, I, I thought he was he was pretty good in this for for being a Lannister. Yeah, he's so compelling. His facial expressions and his sincerity and his intensity. Like, there's a whole lot of intensity that's strung in many ways throughout this movie, but his is a very particular brand because he's going to save his older brother, and we hear little tidbits on their on the start of their journey out there when they're still traveling through the somewhat friendly trenches you know they're not they're not in direct line of fire at that point but he's he's new enough to be getting his ass handed to him by other british soldiers yes well yeah and everyone's either bored or scared or traumatized or all all of the above of course or sleeping in the trench or sleeping like i get it man me too and just like any other depiction of combat in other wars there's a there's a whole lot of boredom and a whole lot of sitting around that's going on and then you know sheer terror when when they're going over the top for example but i think that was also pretty accurate i also have to say i didn't notice uh until now that we've done the war below and they sort of feature a trench periscope up close i didn't realize there is a trench periscope in this as well they just don't show you the view from it but blake is is goes up there to kind of get a view of the the bowing chap right and i think that andrew scott is the first really beaten down guy that we see i fucking love him in this i mean and he's only in it for like maybe two minutes but his performance is like this might sound glib or flippant but it's something out of the more serious scenes in black adder during their world war one episode like he just has this gallows humor mm-hmm. and no patience and i love how he's yelling at the guy wake up Kilgore! bloody waste of space i love that he is beaten down and cranky and has yeah. given up and it is as nihilistic as as you will find <laughs> In a war film, but and this kind of goes back to some of my my critique of Saving Private Ryan. This feels very, very period appropriate in his shittiness to other people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This doesn't feel anachronistic at all. That's like some good old fashioned like fiend to see clay kind of like bleakness. Yeah, I pegged Lieutenant Leslie immediately as Liam's favorite character. Like I just knew that as soon as I watched him, I was like, oh, that's gonna be Liam's favorite character for sure. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, as soon as he blesses him with the whiskey. Yeah, I love that. I love that. <laughs> and then takes a drink. <laughs> Just that, that fucking like mirthless chuckle that he has to borrow the line from Hail Caesar. Yes. That he has when he makes the joke about anointing them with his holy unction. Yeah. Yes. Great, great character who only had two minutes or whatever of screen time and just yeah but then it's like i feel like he was still there when they fire off the flare because it's just <laughs> <For> like sure <laughs> right I, sure. I thought i was like he told you to fire off a flare when are you gonna fire off that flare man because there's they get right out of the mine shaft i do hate losing these to the hunt so when they start shooting at you could you be so kind as to throw it back there's a good chap 
Oh, yes. God, it's so good. Yes. <laughs> and I was wondering, are we going to get a scene where he's like, oh, shit, chuck it back, <laughs> you know, because it's just you really don't know. And if you know anything about World War One, you know that going over the top is like you don't know what you're going to fucking find. Mm-hmm. Death. You're going to find death there. The way he just throws it down with disdain, like, fuck this thing. It was totally (laughs) reminiscent of what the lieutenant told him, because they almost died, even though they weren't exactly getting shot at in that point. So let's talk a little bit about the exit, the first exit from the trench and our first venture into No Man's Land, because this is a shot that's been done in very many World War I films. I can think back to Paths of Glory that has Mm -hmm. a, a very specific long shot. So it's funny you mentioned Private Ryan, uh, Liam, because one of the things that I was thinking about in juxtaposing these two films is Private Ryan, obviously totally different scope. It's historically trying to depict a specific battle, whereas this, that's the one thing about this film I wasn't sure about is I didn't like, for example, I don't understand why they put a date on the front of it, which coincidentally happens to be the day the US joined World War One, which has nothing to do with this story. But I thought it was funny because I'm like, oh, great. You are now giving pedants free fucking reign to like know exactly what day this is supposed to depict so they can tell you exactly what is not supposed to be in this movie. And sure enough, they didn't let me down. I was looking through (laughs) comments online where they're in no man's land, you know, walking through the mud and you're just kind of like looking at the mist and you're like, oh, my God, I feel like death could come from anywhere. And and that feeling of dread and uncertainty is everywhere. And they pass one of those old World War One tanks that has been mired in the mud, which was realistic. The mud was a problem for the tank, so they did oh, yeah. have to abandon a lot of them. And mm-hmm. there's this uh, Mark II tank that's, you know, got its nose in the mud and kind of butt up as they pass by it. And it's, you know, very quintessentially, you know it as a World War One tank. And uh, one, <laughs> some fucking pedant in the uh, in the goobs. <laughs> you could just call them an asshole. Oh man, it, this kind of shit just drives me insane. Basically, the quote said, the Mark II tank was not in this part of France until April 9th, 1917. And I'm like, you got, I just threw my shit on the floor. I'm like, you gotta be fucking kidding me, dude. Like, do you not know what filmmaking is? Like, you're gonna bitch because this tank is three days out of place. So, again, I think it's hilarious. Like, I really kind of wish that they just started the film with 1917 at the front and not April 6th because I'm like, oh man, you're just opening yourself up to all these Uh, nerds that have nothing better to do. Now, did that have anything to do with why the Germans were retreating to the Hindenburg line at that time. Did it have anything to to do with the Americans joining the fight or no? Other than just saying spring 1917 or mid 1917, or again, just 1917. I think the idea that all of these forces are tired and have been in the fight for a long time. And again, part of the history that's not shown in the film is like the French have a lot of mutiny going on and they're literally refusing to go over the top. And, you know, America came in and saved the day. But if you ask British people from this time period or who remember, they're like, yeah, great job, America. Like you haven't been here fighting and dying for the last three years, you know? So it was uh, the Eddie Izzard joke that America always comes into the war like two years later. So by the time America came in, because you were watching a U.S. cavalry film, because the U.S. cavalry always comes in just towards the end of the film. Okay, let's go, America. Ah, I love the smell of Europe in the morning. <laughs> so, how are you doing? And we were going, fucking hell, where have you been? <laughs> well, having breakfast. 
so yeah, I think that uh, other than trying to just give some context to the fact that these forces are all tired and have been mired in this type of combat for a long time and bringing that in from different angles. I don't think there's any other reason to have a specific date because again, while the Psalm and Passchendaele are alluded to here, this is not about a specific battle. It's not a very specific area in the trench. It's kind of like could be anywhere on the Western front in, in right. World War One. Generally, That's kind speaking. of the goal, I think. So here's a quote from Thomas Phillips from the Machine Gun Corps on battlefield conditions in Ypres in October. Same year, but a little bit later. So we were marched into Ypres with the baggage and machine guns in a lorry and up through Hellfire Corner going up the Menin Road, where old Jerry used to shell all day and night. We passed that all right up Menin Road about half a mile. Oh, what ruin. The horses, mules, men, everything dead across. I never saw such destruction in my life, and big shells coming over, bursting. We managed and we didn't catch a shell at all. Then we had to advance up two small ridges from the main road, and there we came across small tanks that had been knocked out or stuck in the mud. They were no damn good at all. The production designer for this is Dennis Gasner. He also did uh, Blade Runner 2049 and lots of other great films, and he's worked with Deakins and Mendes several times, and he's quite the eye for his job. And one of the things he mentions in them digging up the trenches, they had to do surveys of the land because the area they were digging the trench up in was an actual battlefield. And so they had to make sure they weren't digging up bodies where they were digging. Fuck. Yeah, that's how how intense that was. I bring that up specifically to say that the clay and the type of mud that you see in the film, which Sam Mendes mentions slipping on and eating shit on more times than he'd like to mention in several of the actors, because you see it when they first come out and they come out of the trench. I mean, you see them put their foot down and every time they put their foot down, it slides like two inches. The slides and sinks all at once. Yep. And squelches. <laughs> the mud was relatively accurate. Here's a couple of quotes describing the mud, which I really think they nailed <laughs> here's jack dylan who's a lewis gunner so probably a machine gunner mm-hmm. on the swampiness of the battlefield now the mud at passchendaele was very viscous indeed very tenacious it stuck to you your putties were solid mud anyway but it stuck to you all over it slowed you down it got into the bottom of your trousers you were covered with mud the mud there wasn't liquid it wasn't porridge it was a curious kind of sucking kind of mud when you got off this track with your load, it drew at you, not like a quicksand, but a real monster that sucked at you. And here's a quote from William Collins, stretcher bearer on the mud. Yeah, that job must have been fun. Ugh. It was a nightmare because all you had was a couple of duck boards side by side and either side of it was about 10 feet of mud with the top of a tank sticking out of it here and there. If you fell off, it would take a traction engine to pull you out almost. It was that deep. It was absolute sucking mud. There were cases where one or two men slipped off the duckboards, and it took a couple of their comrades to pull them out gradually, inch by inch. And duckboards, for anyone who doesn't know, are just the flat boards that they put at the bottom of trenches and in any area where you had to walk across these muddy fields because it was the only way to really get around. A sucking mire of uh, awful grossness. Gross. This is really where... The one shot, but also just the camera work in general, which again required a lot of new technology and specifically choreographed techniques, really brings everything together to give you that feeling of this terrifying place where death is all around. And I didn't finish my point, but the reason I brought up St. Bright Ryan is in St. Bright Ryan, you see a lot of combat and a lot of 
death happening in this film you see a lot of bodies and you see the end result of combat mm-hmm. and the death it, it's the aftermath you can smell the death and it's everywhere around you and they didn't shy away from even mendez mentions as they go down into that huge crater full of water which again when you watch the scene you're like oh wow the camera's floating over this water at some point which they you know they did with wires and stuff but you can see sort of from the bowing chap you see different states of decomposition where you'll see mm-hmm. like yep. there's a skeleton on the far end of the crater kind of half buried in the mud but you also see more fresh bodies and rats eating bodies so it's just like there's a entire menagerie of decay it's a, a festival for the eyes you're panning through this and it's every time i've watched this i'm finding new dead shit in the mud mm-hmm. yeah so there was more than one incident where i was watching it and i was like what is that oh god that's a skull that's a face that's mm-hmm. a thing like and i think it's really topped off if you will by the scene where schofield has hurt his hand on the barbed wire and they go down into the hole and he falls and puts his whole freshly injured hand right into the chest cavity and it's just that was fucking hilarious i'm so every time i watch that <sighs> it makes me laugh out loud like maybe it's uncomfortable laughter every time i'm just like oh my god um, that is the worst thing that could ever happen to another human being you could see on his face that he's going i gotta keep this clean what am i gonna do about this <laughs> right i gotta i gotta be careful with it a fucking open wound just like right into a chest cavity oh god i don't wanna lose my hand and then he, and then he just goes like oh fuck it i guess i'm just gonna keep going whatever hopefully i don't die of an infection i mean it's great storytelling right again it, right. it is all of this is unspoken but you can see it all in the actor's face george mckay just sells it well and what was the there's a masturbation joke that they throw in later oh yeah oh yeah you handle right put it through an effing german patch it up if you won't get a guy any notes on Oh, man. Oh, that's so fun. (laughs) Still had time to make a masturbation joke. I have to say that, and I texted you guys about this, that in some ways to me, this movie feels like a horror film. Right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The death and the war are the Jason or Freddy Krueger or whatever. They are just right around the corner. It's the Germans. It is the Germans who they're fighting, but the Germans are never really given any kind of unique personality there's no representation of the germans like there is say in saving private ryan Mm -hmm. the only time we get really up close and personal with them is during the horrific death scene when the plane comes down is when he shows up and stabs that dude right but then it's more he doesn't get to say anything he's not really even given much of a face it's just that he inflicts death and then the guy schofield kills him and then we move on and it's just like another Jason popping out of the corner and stabbing you and then you get away. But there's also the, um, it wasn't the, the hat on a hat on a hat that you get with imitation game, but it also wasn't quite the restraint of parasite is when they kick the, the can over and all the fresh smoldering ashes come tumbling out. And then it's like, Oh, they're not long gone. They, yep. they were just here. We knew that from you kicking that can over. You didn't really have to say it. Right. That's like my only nitpick with this movie. Yeah, well, it's, it's it's one of the things I picked up in the trivia that was interesting and I wouldn't have thought about, but I can't hold it against the film because they don't say anything more. But the film seems to imply that, you know, they've 
they were there cooking something or, or having a fire a matter of hours ago. In a trench, in a metal can, ashes kind of protect smoldering embers. And they're like, mm-hmm. that thing could be hot for three or four days. So if yeah. anything, it, it's more confusing than anything because it reminds you of the presence of the enemy, but you're not really sure how long ago they were here. Right. To Katie's point, it's interesting too that these moments of encounters with the enemy, with the Germans, or, oh, I finally learned what the Bosch means. Remember in... Uh, the war below, mm. they use the term the Bosch. It comes from the French caboche, which means rascal. So it was just one of the nicknames that they had. They use the Hun a lot, but I, I hadn't yes. found an explanation before that. But um, death is kind of the thing that you're encountering that's jumping out on you. Mm-hmm. But it's sort of up to the character whose death it's going to be. Like with the sniper, they're trying to kill each other. With the kid that he comes up on in the town, he's just trying to keep him quiet and move through. When the kid starts yelling, he realizes the only way to get him to shut up is going to be to kill him. So right. you have to face death in one way or another, but it might be you killing somebody else. It might not necessarily be your death. So I, I think that that's ever present as well. So after they go through the German lines, they go underground. And that is one of the most fucking harrowing scenes i'd seen in a while i was on like the edge of my seat like oh god oh god Mm -hmm. because i wasn't sure what was going to happen and that i think is where we see the first almost death of one of these two guys where the rat sets the trap off oh jesus oh no and he's almost buried alive at that point i wondered i was like we're just going to see progressively more and more terrible things happen to this guy until the end of the film. Yes. <laughs> Spoiler and alert. Then yes. Yeah, that was, that was exactly what happened. We'll call this concussion number one for Schofield. Right? And the eyes, oh, I got stuff in my eyes the whole time. I was like, oh, God. And he has to make a jump over a blind pit. So they go through this mine shaft. They manage to make it out. And that, I believe, is where they... Is that where they set the flare off? That's where they set the flare off after they get through there. And they see that all of the cannons have been destroyed. Yes, because then it's obvious the Germans have definitely left. But to your point, that's that's why I feel like the Germans are... The Germans are the specter that is looming over this entire journey. And they have left death behind for you. Yes. Those cans of food that they find there very well are probably poisoned. Right. There's just so many little. There's lots of attempts. I agree. Yeah. There's booby traps. There's. Usually in a movie like this, they're going to show lots of uh, German accoutrement. We're going to see flags. We're going to see. We're going to see. Well, Spielberg's not making this one. Right, I know that. But that but well we do see something from the German's angle. It's when they go through and he sees the picture of someone's family that's been left behind. Mm-hmm. Not, you know, a praise to uh, the Kaiser or whatever. So, I think it definitely is that the Germans are there and that's who's coming, but I think it's also portrayed that the Germans are just guys on the other side rather than like horrific monster force that is so often portrayed in some world war one films where they're just these evil ravenous beasts in this they are very much portrayed as just men who are doing the same things essentially that our main characters are doing just for the other side well and more so than a humanizing thing for the germans i think seeing that photo in the bunker Mm -hmm. is more of a character note for schofield yeah 
because Schofield's the one who stops to look at it. Mm-hmm. Because more so than the cinematography, the Edward Norton has no name aspect of this is that Schofield actually does have a wife and kids at home. Right. That he is spending the entire movie not talking about. Or telling anyone about. Nothing. Nothing. Like, he is asked directly, do you have children? And he does not answer that question, even though it's in French. And he talks about him going home and how mm-hmm. he didn't... He didn't. He hated it. I hated going home. I hated it. When I knew I couldn't stay. When I knew I had to leave. And they might never see me. Yeah, because he didn't want to come back. And he didn't want to give them the hope that he will one day return home for good, that he's not going to die in this conflict. And that every, you know, every time he has to go home, it's just prolonging that experience for both him and his family. But we don't know about his family because you assume there's probably a, a maybe he's got a mom. Yeah. He just says, I hated going home. George McKay is could be anywhere between 17 and 28, mm-hmm. 29 in this. Right. We don't find out till the end that it's probably the latter because he's got kids and a wife. So I spent a lot of the movie wondering. I was like, how old is this guy? So they come out of the mines. They go through an orchard of cherry trees, which I thought was very beautiful and poignant. That had been cut down. Yep, Mm -hmm. cut down. And and we learn a little bit more about Blake, that his mother has an orchard and he knows about all the different kinds of cherries. And that is one of the really good moments of character development between the two of them. And then it all goes to shit when they find the farmhouse and we see a dogfight happening between two allied airplanes and one German. They bring the German plane down and it proceeds to crash directly into the barn that they're right outside of. And the German pilot has survived, which was not unusual at the time. You would survive and more than likely you would burn to death before you were able to get out of the cockpit. They managed to pull him out. And then the German pilot stabs Blake in the, in the gut. And it's fucking horrific. Did you see the fucking size of that knife? This time watching it, when they're dragging him, you see this like goddamn dagger that's just like right. dangling from his belt. It's like a machete almost. Jesus, that thing is huge. It's like Crocodile Dundee level, now that's a knife kind of knife. Yes, yes. It's a short sword. Yeah, it was likely a bayonet, which were pretty long. Probably, but I mean, like, Jesus, I was like, that whole thing went in you? Yeah, and like from there, you know, if you know anything about anatomy, a shot in that area of your stomach or a stab wound or anything, more than likely... You have maybe two minutes, maybe you're probably going to bleed out before then, but maybe two minutes if you're lucky, because if you don't die from bleeding out, you're going to die almost immediately from an infection because you get sepsis because it punctures your intestines. Mm -hmm. It's a horrific way to die. It's incredibly painful. And it is so hard to watch the two of them go through this. And he goes fucking gray. He does. And that is just some of the best makeup work. I thought the same thing. And Sam Mendes even says, believe it or not, because he knows some people won't believe him. But he says that Dean Charles Chapman was such a good actor. He went gray in the face, just straight up through acting. 
He said later when they lay his body down, they desaturated some of the color in his face to sort of, you know, show the process of the body dying and losing blood. But he said that the initial him going almost blue in the face was 100% just his acting, which is why you also don't see it in his hands. It's just in his face. And the way they achieved the bleeding effect, which I think probably helped the actor a lot, is they had a pack of blood on his back in a container with a pump. And at the beginning of that scene, at some point when he's interacting with the German, I don't know if it was remote controlled or what, but it was already pumping blood, you know, before the stabbing scene and stuff. And so the actor would have felt the liquid kind of starting to seep in and fill his Uh. trousers and all that. And so, you know, talk about the difference between CGI and a practical effect where the actor didn't have to do that much work uh, outside of imagining the pain to think about what that would be like by the time he lays him down on the ground and Schofield sort of lifts his blouse and he's trying to find the wound and stop the bleeding you know he's covered in blood and it's just gushing out right yeah that's a combination of exceptional acting and really good practical oh. effects yeah he he really does that and he really knocks it out of the park because it's like it's noticeable there's a huge difference between when you first see his face and when he's actually dead is he okay? Because you shouldn't be able to do that with your face. <laughs> That's true. I don't know how. I bet he, in the same way that some actors can make themselves cry, I assume he probably. I can just make myself, uh, my, my, my face go dead. Panic in his body where the blood, you know, once you hit, if you hit that fight or flight response, a lot of times the blood does drain from your face in an effort. I'm to- just going to go out on a limb here and guess that this young actor did not know that he was capable of draining the blood from his face. I'm pretty sure it <laughs> no, was probably just, not. I'm pretty sure it was just a side effect of his acting. If it was Dustin Hoffman, he really would have stabbed himself in the stomach. Yeah, I mean, that boy was obviously he's obviously in the right profession. Yes, I did want to mention that. I thought this scene, he's collecting milk and they're kind of messing around in the farmhouse and taking a break, essentially, or at least there's a pause in their movement and you see the planes come in. This is foreshadowed because it's doubtless these are the same two fighters that you saw earlier, right? Right. Yeah. This highlights really well the way this film sort of juxtaposes distance and detachment and the bigger scope of the war to the intimacy of watching someone die in your hands, literally. Because when you see the planes come in, it's almost like even they're almost having fun watching it. And it's very distant. And even the sound of the machine gun is just this kind of like distant, like, yeah, it's just barely there, right? And so they're watching it and they're wondering who's who and, oh, I think that's the German, et cetera. And then the plane comes around and Mendez even talks about how the slope of this hill was perfect for the shot. And they found that hill on purpose because he wanted the plane to go down below the hill to where the audience and Schofield both think that the plane is crashing at this point. And then you see the plane pop back up and they're like, oh, shit. Oh, yeah. There are films where imagine a a tower or a skyscraper falling straight down and the characters are running parallel to it and you're watching and you're going, why don't you just run away from it perpendicular? It's only going to take you a few feet to get out of the way. Yes. And so I've seen some people complain about that in this scene, but I think everything happens so fast and Blake is kind of already inside the building that by the time they were making a decision, I don't think they really had time to be like, what's the optimal direction to run? You just run. Just turn around and run. You just run out of the way. Right. Just run. And- In the way you were saying that the picture that Schofield finds in the bunker 
is more indicative of a character development moment for him more than it is humanizing the Germans. I think in the same way, the way the characters immediately, it's not a decision. It's automatic. They're not going to let this German. No, just get the guy out of the burning plane. Yeah. Like they're not going to watch someone die burned alive in a plane, right? They're going to pull him out. And yet that decision almost immediately results in Blake's death. Right. And because they're young. Mm hmm. Because you could see them pulling him out, letting him roll around on the ground, and then one of them stands back and holds him at weapons ready while the other goes to get water. And searches him for weapons, too. You know, you know he's got a pistol, you know he's got a knife. But because they're so sympathetic and so young, they just react in this, in this stressful moment and don't have that experience to know that, like, yes, this is a human being, but if he gets a chance, he's going to kill me. We're still at war here, and that's Blake's downfall. His kindness, and it's. I cried a little bit. I was like, oh no, I was so. I wanted to see him make it to his brother, but no. That is a little bonkers to me. I'm trying to picture a shitty enough person who could pull me out of a burning plane with my legs still on fire, and I'd still just stab them the first chance that I got. I, I can't think of somebody who I would stab who had just pulled me out of a burning plane, but. Also thinking back to like the blue max Mm -hmm. where there was supposed to be some kind of chivalry, chivalry, nobility, some sense of honor amongst these pilots. Mm -hmm. That seems weird to me. Well, honor amongst their own pilots. The goal for the pilots is to survive and, and not be captured. Right. But I mean. They pulled him out of a burning plane. I'm sure that he's fairly certain he would have survived that at that point. They weren't going to pull him out of the plane just to kill him. No, yeah, for sure. I get what Liam's saying here. And I know Katie's read about this as well. From this time period and aviation also, like aviators versus infantrymen, there is a certain code and some chivalry there with some exceptions, probably. This is more World War II than World War I. But if you manage to jump out of your plane and parachute down most enemy fighters, both on the ground and in aircraft, would not fire on you when you're descending in your parachute. Basically, it's like, okay, you're a POW now. I don't think it's necessarily trying to make the German really look like a meanie. I think it's a little bit more showing the desperation of the time period that they're in. Everything else that points to history here points to things are starting to turn the wrong way for the Germans and they're running out of equipment and they're, you know. Oh yeah, it's already started unraveling for them at this point. That doesn't necessarily help put you in the mindset of, I agree with Liam, like I don't, yeah, I can't picture myself stabbing the person who just saved my life. No. But I think it's it's less of a sort of old school, let's make the German look like the bad guy trope and more just the desperation of the situation and the fact that he just, barely survived a dogfight and was, you know, two other British men were just trying to kill him two seconds ago. But that's the thing, right? This is this is the part of war that's hard for most of us to understand is how you can be shooting directly at someone who's also trying to kill you one second and the next second they surrender and they're also wounded and now you have to provide them with medical care and take care of them and give them some of your food. As a person, as a human, those are just difficult gears to switch. Feels unfair. It's like an affront to your senses of fairness and what's right. Right. And I I agree. So after this, we get to see Mark Strong. Oh, man. For a little bit, which is always a treat. As soon as that voice showed up, I was like, oh, 
Take me home, daddy. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. And it, oh, this is a this is a little odd, honestly, because he comes in and there's a what is is it a platoon? Is that what you would call this group? I not even sure uh, in terms of size, but it's just very, kind of a random group, yeah. Yeah, it's a group of soldiers who are traveling. It was a convoy. There was a general there in his fancy ass car or whatever. Oh god, being a dick. Yeah. Move the tree. That was pretty what funny. What a prick. <laughs> and you can tell that Mark Strong is just like, mm-mm. He talks to him like he's an idiot. He does. Like a drunk idiot. Sir. I think that's how you how you have to treat generals, maybe. I don't know. You're just like, oh, no, absolutely. What you said is right, but we should do it this way. Especially British generals at this time. Yeah. <laughs> so they, um, he manages to catch a ride, and he's given, what, maybe 30 seconds to deal with the death of this guy mm-hmm. that he's been traveling with and has this deep emotional relationship with, it's clear. Who saved his life in the bunker. Right. And who he's, what, maybe an hour or two out from that experience. So it's just trauma after trauma after trauma. Less than an hour, like 20 minutes. This is filmed. That's the other weird thing about this movie. It's not only like a one shot, but it is, apart from the blackout, shot in real time. Mm-hmm. Yep. And so we see... They're not able to take him all the way to Ikust, but he is able to get across the bridge into the city and continue on his mission. And this is where things get harrowing. Because of the way they're shooting this, we don't really get to see anything from the German perspective. So we have no idea where the troops are. We are as ignorant as he is as he's trying to navigate the initial sniper when he's getting into the city. So we have no way of knowing how many Germans are there here. How careful does he need to be? Where exactly should he try to go? And that mystery is upheld up until about the blackout scene. Because I think from that point on, he gets out and then we he meets up with the British soldiers. But I think at this point, day is fading into dusk. And so he knows he is running out of time because they are going to attack at dawn. Okay, so if you look at the soundtrack, this track is called The Night Window. And so that's kind of what I call this whole scene. But it is after the only obvious cut in the film where he wakes up and it's nighttime. And he's been, he's had a glancing blow from the sniper that knocks him out. And that's right. Shortly thereafter discovers that he did kill the sniper. Well, he also cracked his skull open (laughs) and he fell down the stairs. I know. He's just gushing blood from the back of his head. Right. And this is my favorite track of the whole soundtrack, for sure. It's the strongest Mm -hmm. part. I agree. And, you know, I've had friends argue that it's like showing you and telling you too much, where like they feel like the score is pushing them too much into feeling. But for me, I, I just this track blows me away. And it's just with the movement of the camera and the the way it descends into the town and then the flares and the rising crescendo of the violins. But even from the first time I ever saw this, I immediately was like, how the hell did the mechanics of this movement work? I couldn't understand how this Steadicam shot that's, you know, someone holding the camera walking up the stairs behind him just goes out the window and then down into the street and then catches up with him again. It's one of the only times the camera leaves the character for just a few seconds. But I remember mm-hmm. watching it and I, going, I couldn't figure it out. I was like, I don't know how they did this because I know they did it in real time and with practical effects. It turns out they built the wall 
that the window is in, the window the camera goes out of, to separate. They don't spend a lot of time talking about it in the making of, but you can see it. Whereas the camera's following the character. There's, so there's a bunch of debris out the window. So essentially, he's mm-hmm. able to just walk out the window and down because there's rubble there. It's like a little hill. But they pull the left side of the wall completely away from the window as the camera goes through. So you can't see it happening, but that allows the whole crew and this rig to go through and then these cameras that Deacons helped kind of develop this smaller, I think he called it a dragonfly, but it's a smaller version of this Mm -hmm. HD camera. They always had these poles on the outside so that you were able to have two people carry the camera and then attach it to a bunch of different rigs. So it could go from a crane to a person, to the back of a Jeep, to a motorcycle, to whatever, seamlessly, because all of those pieces of equipment and vehicles um, had the slots to put those horizontal bars into. You know who you can thank for that, by the way? Not the rig, but the wall? Orson Welles. Is that right? Fascinating. Citizen Kane, there's a shot. Of course, Citizen Kane, RKO gave him total creative control and unlimited budget, and... Nobody got that deal ever again until like Kevin Costner made Waterworld. Right. Mm-hmm. It's it's never a financially good idea for a studio to do that because it almost wrecked RKO as well. But he would just say, I want this shot to do this. And they'd be like, that's not a thing that can be done. It's impossible. And he was like, I don't care. You're not allowed to tell me no. So he wanted a <laughs> shot that like went up the building to the neon sign, push through the neon sign, down to the skylight and into the room, all while it's raining. Mm-hmm. And so that's what they did is they actually like they built the neon sign in two pieces. And so when the camera got up close to it, they pulled it apart and the camera went on through. That was the first time that kind of thing had been done. No, oh, very cool. Yeah, I mean, it's a good example of something that you see requires all this choreography, planning, production design. Absolutely. Not to belittle the, what was done in this movie. Like no, this no. movie, it takes a lot of these building blocks that you get from Orson Welles, from Alfred Hitchcock, and then just fucking dials them up to 11 mm-hmm. with new shit. And executes them perfectly. Yeah, absolutely. And a big part of how they did it was there was, this is like a, this was a prototype camera. It was an Alexa Mini LF, which is stands for large format. And so it was a... It was a small, lightweight camera that was able to fit into these really unique and new style rigs while still getting that large format size that Roger Deakins wanted. Because the size of your camera can definitely limit how big your formatting is going to be. And Deakins said that he was insanely paranoid that somebody was going to break it because they couldn't just call up the manufacturer and be like, hey, I need another one because they got one of the first prototypes of oh, the camera to use for their shooting. So that's the other reason that and the rig setup that they had that you were talking about, Dan, that's what enables those smooth flowing shots from place to place to place. Right. Is because it was both very, very light and very nimble. Thankfully, they weren't setting off any kinds of like large explosions near that camera because that could have been <laughs> <No>. dangerous. <laughs> And and most of the time, most of the film, it was a fixed 40 millimeter lens to aid in the whole one shot thing, because if the focus changed, you could screw up the shot. But honestly, Dan, to touch back on what you were saying with the score in that moment, mm-hmm. fuck him, that score is perfect and needs to be there. I know. Yeah. I'm a big fan of juxtaposing 
elements that don't seem to go together. Mm -hmm. But there are times that you have to marry one element to another of an equally grand scale. Mm -hmm. I could see something like this being done a different way. Oh, yeah. It, It reminds me of, not to this scale, but there's a similar shot in Platoon. If you remember with the the phosphorus flare and like yes. the shadows right. creeping around. And I think that was done to very minimal sound. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You could, you could imagine the scene with just a light piano in the background on the high end of things. Or even just like a ticking clock kind of sound, you know, like just like yeah. a slow rhythmic sort of thing and otherwise utter silence. But with the grand scale of this shot and the grand scale of this movie, And the fucking insane lighting and how that shot in platoon is not a one shot. Mm -hmm. There's so much of this that is done in one take, even though they stitch a lot of shit together. This scene is fabulous. And I don't think it's masturbatory to put like a big thick ass score on top of it. That absolutely melts your face off. Accentuates the drama and the intensity of what's going on. This is such a big moment. He's kind of made it a little bit. You know, and now he's facing this huge issue. That kind of moment deserves recognition. And you don't have to do it this way, but I think it works for this movie when you do it this way. Right. I feel like when this movie goes big, it works. And there are several times when it does it. And this is one of those scenes. I mean, even the lighting goes from literally completely pitch black. And the only scene where we get an actual cut in time, as we mentioned, to when you get outside with the flares, you're going from this bright tungsten light that's moving to darkness and shadows and getting the shots of the character's face in the light in the moments when you want it in the light. Now, none of this stuff happens by accident. Deacons and Gasner built a scale model of this city and then they used, I think they used LEDs, but they created these wires on top where they moved the light around so that they could see how the shadows were being cast and how they moved as they moved the lights over the model. And that model allowed them to build this entire set like that. And then they basically put these real flares on wires. So they controlled the path that the flare was taking above and they knew they choreographed like a ballet where the light was moving through the windows onto the floor and onto Makai's face and planned all of that out and then had to do it as a one shot. Who knows? I have no idea how many takes it took them to get this scene in particular right, but man. This is, I think, the only only time in the film where we see a woman. Yes. And she's taking care of a baby that's not hers. She's hiding in a basement. Baby's a girl, just so you know. So we see two women. (laughs) Okay. Well, no, we see a a woman and a girl. Yes. This is the chance where we get to see Schofield just really show his dramatic chops. And she speaks French, but seems to have a little bit of a grasp of English and basic terms. And he has a little bit of French, so they're able to have something of a conversation. And you can see how deeply affected he is by this experience, how tender he is with the baby and how interested he is in making sure that both her and the baby survive by like, here's this whole ass flask full of milk. Here's all of the food that I have. I'm probably going to die, but you might live (laughs) if I give it to you. And it's, it's 
Wonderful. One of the things that I love about this scene is when she goes to bandage his head. Yes. And it's like, you just, when was the last time a woman touched that man? Yeah, right. At all. You can see that kind of moment there where it's just like, ah, what would, what, like, it's not a temptation kind of moment, which, you know, I, I appreciate but it's just like this weird. It's comforting. It's comforting, but he also has a strong discomfort with it, like with how comforting it is, because it's not his wife. Right. You know what I mean? Like, and all of that is is there in his face in that performance where it's like, this is not my wife, but man, this feels really good to just have somebody care for me. And like, there's a lot going on with his face in that moment. Claire Dubuc is what I'm going to guess you say, how you say that last name that has both a C and a Q right next to each other. <laughs> and she doesn't bend in much. This was her first film. And she's, uh, we don't see much of her, but wow, is she give a powerful performance. Mm-hmm. You don't really get even a clear shot of her face. Right. Not very shadowy. It's lit by a fire and it's very obviously actually lit by a fire. Right. Kubrick style. Mostly natural lighting in this movie. Yeah. For the most part, because... Or flares or that yeah. kind of firelight. But they did like a yeah. lot of daylight. Yeah, it's it's one of the things we didn't mention earlier when we were talking about the one-shot style is that so much of it is filmed outdoors, but they had to wait for cloud cover, which is one of the reasons they filmed in England, because they were able to get a lot of that. It's but cloudy a lot there. They could have filmed that in Pittsburgh. <laughs> True. <laughs> but they needed sort of this constant opaque lighting outside for continuity so that it wouldn't screw up the takes. Another thing I hadn't thought about until I read about it was how the mud could screw up continuity. So you had to be careful because you can't just walk into a muddy scene unless it's really messy enough. Certainly some of the battlefield scenes are that and then do the take again and have the character's footprints in front of, you know what I mean? Like you have to be careful about that and that has to be planned out. Otherwise we'll talk about this Eventually, when we talk about Lawrence of Arabia is, you know, you got to do a lot of sand raking and resetting things. But if it's right. if it's all in a one shot, it's that much more complicated. The other thing is that I hadn't thought about before is, yeah, like in a normal setting, you have lights behind the camera that are lighting, you know, the scene, the characters, etc. And you can set it up however you want. They deliberately move the camera 360 degrees all the time in this film. And so there are so many situations where you either can't have those rigs set up behind the camera, or if they were set up, you have to move them by the time the camera comes around without having like obvious light moving across. So yeah, the lighting has to be very limited because of the style that they're deciding to shoot this in. And even with that, you're still moving like a massive crew, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, like that, obviously in the trench scenes, but when they're outside of the trench scenes, it's like, it's not just, you know, the cameraman and the cinematographer who are moving and maybe the director, it is literally 20, 30 people are all pivoting around the scene. And it's, they limit it really well so that most of those scenes are well-planned so that they don't have to do that. Mm-hmm. But a couple of times they just go balls out and they're like, Taha! we right. moved so much stuff for this scene. And as a viewer, again, there's so much contrast between, in this scene we're talking about going from the, the black of the knockout to the flares to the sort of intimate and sentimental scene with the mother to then 
towards the end of this sequence before he jumps into the river, he gets to the burning church, which is another moment of them cranking things up to 2000, quite literally. Uh, (laughs) That effect was basically the biggest lighting rig that Roger Deakins has ever had built. Oh, wow. So they built this entire towering setup with 2000 lamps that were just flashing the entire scene. And then they later turned that into a building facade on fire with visual effects. So that's how they got that shot. Okay. And then, of course, you have the moment with the opposing soldier, who I think is wearing a gas mask, right? His face is obscured. I think he's silhouetted, so you can't see him anyway. But mm-hmm. I, I don't mm-hmm. know that he's wearing a gas mask. I, I, I honestly can't remember because I just see him in like a black outline. Right. And you can tell that the character doesn't know who is, is this guy. British, is he German? You know, what's going to happen here? And then, of course, he starts getting shot at. And so we transition from the end of the town to jumping into the river and sort of into the last act of the film. Yes. It's really the only shot that I don't like. Oh, which one? Is the the transition from the jump off the bridge down into the river. Hmm. That looks very CGI. I agree. And I know they they stitched it together with CGI, but man. There's a couple of CGI moments in this and that I agree was definitely one of them. That one was one of the one of the rougher ones. The other one being the flies around the horse and the rat. The rat was I didn't mind the flies so much. That one didn't really jump out at me, but the the rat is it's not like the rat at the end of the departed, but <laughs> right. Right. There aren't rat trainers. I mean, I mean, there absolutely are rat trainers, but... But not for a one-shot, there aren't rat trainers. Yeah, if if this hadn't been a one-shot, they probably would have used alive rats, but because they needed it to take this very specific path and do this very specific thing. Right. And so, therefore, I was like, okay, I'll forgive you. I'll forgive you this one time. Yeah, I think (laughs) it depends on how complicated the thing is you need the animals to do. Like, I know there were shots where they needed crows you know, ravens to be in mm-hmm. specific shots. And they actually filmed the ravens for real, but with a blue screen behind them. And then were able to stitch those on top of the no man's land scene later. Mm-hmm. So they kind of, so they, so right. it's kind of a combination of things like they're real animals, but they were stitched into the scene later. Right. But yeah, moving into kind of the last act here, it feels like the beginning of a new chapter or, or a beginning of the, the beginning of the last chapter in this film when he jumps into the river and kind of comes back out. Everything sort of quiets down. The dawn starts to break. He's floating down the river. Almost drowns. Yeah, a couple times. <laughs> like falls asleep. <laughs> Goes over the cliff or over the waterfall. And it's so tranquil. Mm-hmm. There's a tranquility and a peacefulness about it. Right. And then... You get to the beaver dam. No, not even just the beaver. Before we get to the beaver dam, and this is one of my favorite little details of it. Those are cherry blossoms. Mm-hmm. Yep. Falling yep. on him, which. Callback. Is, yeah, is a nice little little callback. Like, that's the thing that kind of wakes him back up. Exactly. He looks like he's about to give up. Yeah. Yeah. And then the cherry blossoms start to fall on him and he remembers what he's doing. It's not telegraphed too, obviously, but they definitely aren't shying away from it. I mean, he looks over and I think even grabs one of them in his hand. I mean, again, it's it's done tactfully, but it's very obvious if you're paying attention that that's what they're doing. Yes. No, it's it's very it is a very deft touch to it. Like it's it's very nicely done. Yes. And it 
doesn't take very long from when he goes from, oh, maybe I'll just die right now and just let myself drown to, oh, I forgot I have a mission. Let me get my shit together and get back to what I was doing. And then. And then. And then I'm going to climb over the most bloated bodies oh in history. Because like I said, like that, that tranquility and that peace, and it's beautiful and very, it's very bucolic. And then he comes up against the beaver dam. And as you're approaching the beaver dam, something looks a little off. But then as you get closer and closer, you realize that, well, it is, yes, a beaver dam. It is also a dam made of human bodies. And he has to climb over so many just to get out of the water. And it's just, you can see on his face, like, there's more than one moment where he's like, I, I, I can't. I can't do this anymore. I can't keep going. Yeah, that was and rough. He Ugh. makes it out. And this is where we get the first kind of hint of hope. Because is it is it right when he gets out that he starts hearing the singing? Well, not to rewind for a second, but I, I think we also get the first moment of a bit of catharsis, right? Doesn't he get on his knees and just finally breaks down crying? Oh, yeah, he just screams. Oh, yeah, he just totally freaks out. At that point, I looked at it, I was like, I would have done this at least three times by now. I, know. I would have gotten up and continued, but I, I would have broken down. We've moved beyond the realm of the British stiff upper lip. Yes. Your 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 lip is now permitted to quiver. Yep. Slightly. Yeah, the scene has also a very kind of heaven and hell feel to it. Mm-hmm. Like he's like I've seen comparisons to the river sticks, you know, but Yeah, that was a thing that they were going for in the film, I remember reading. Yeah, floating down the river, again, immediately encounters dozens of dead bodies, you know, breaks down crying, and then this angelic voice comes to him through the woods so he hears the song it's i am a poor wayfaring stranger and that was performed live i am a poor wayfaring stranger i'm traveling through this world of woe and probably by someone who Dean Charles Chapman knew because he was a West End singer. And Dean Charles Chapman's first big claim to fame was playing Billy Elliot. He was the second longest running performer in the Billy Elliot at West End. And he did indeed work with Tom Holland. Ooh, nice. Because they're roughly the same age. And I think there's this sad moment where he gets a moment of, of respite. Because I feel like if that hadn't been the Devons, he would have given up. Right. Because there's no going any further. And it's only that he finds out he's so close to the end. And even though the sun is up and he finds out the, the group he finds is what, the fourth wave? He said their second wave, but they, they're D company. That's right. Mm. That's right. So he then has an epic last minute run to try to find Mackenzie, played by Benedict Cumberbatch. And oh my. This is, I think, one of the more intimidating shots in the film because, as Dan said, like there's this is a scene of men going over the top. He can't get through fast enough, so he climbs over the top and is running parallel to the trench while men are climbing up over the lip of the top. He runs into more than one, falls down at least once, which as I was watching it, I was wondering, I was like, I wonder if that was planned or if it just happened. And I would guess it just happened. Yeah, that would be my guess is it just happened. And they were like, oh, looks great. Looks great. We'll keep that. that this is the take. This is the take. Because it's just like it's the last indignity. <laughs> you know, you run into a guy and you go sprawling and you 
still have to get up and keep going. And then he makes it and finds the bunker where Mackenzie is. And he almost is prevented from going in by guards, lieutenants, sergeants. Uh, Yeah, I think those are just... Just dudes. They're just standing watch. Yeah. yeah. And that was like so heartbreaking. I was like, no, you can't stop it with this. It can't be. <laughs> just the film just ends like that. <laughs> <laughs> like they, they throw him in jail and. And they wouldn't let yeah, him in. Like, the end. Oh, this is painful because it's like he's already been through so much. And now it's the, even the own British forces are trying to stop him from delivering his message. And Mackenzie doesn't want to fucking hear it. Which we learned from Mark Strong. I, do, do we think that Mark Strong and Benedict Cumberbatch had history? Like, does he know him or is he just know? Are you talking about the actors or the, the, the people? No, the, the characters. What Liam is talking about is the moment that Captain Smith, played by Mark Strong, and Schofield have earlier, mm-hmm. where he pulls him aside for a second. He says, If you do manage to get to Colonel McKenzie, make sure there are witnesses. But some men just want the fight. And so it's not 100% clear to me whether he knows McKenzie and knows that McKenzie's one, like, really hard-headed, or whether he's just saying in general, hey, man, you're about to go stop a battle that's been being planned for weeks or whatever. Like, make sure someone's there with you because it's unclear to me whether he knew him personally. I don't know that it matters, but... Yeah, it's... it's. I like that ambiguity, but... Mm-hmm, me too. I mean, everybody kind of knew everybody in World War One. They all kind of... Especially if you were... Depending on the front you were on. But in the Western Front, you know, these are all people who are interacting within sometimes... 20, 30 miles of each other. And so they all kind of know each other's business and they know the gossip. And so my guess is that he would know, like, this is probably someone you're going to have to push because someone who's leading that kind of attack is going to have, going to be more Patton, if you will, more invested in the idea of we must fight and triumph because you got to have, you got to have that confidence in order to lead your men. Mm-hmm that really paints a a vivid picture of the kind of dickhead that you're going to be dealing with when you get there. Mm -hmm. Kind of. And you get there and it's not wrong, but at the same time you get that same beaten down nihilism that we got from Lieutenant Leslie, where it's just like, no, yeah, sure. We'll call off the attack. There's no hope. They're going to tell me to attack tomorrow. Exactly. The next day, it's going to be the exact opposite to just go ahead and do it anyway. I really wanted today to be a good day. Right. And again, they're showing you a nuanced character in just a few lines. Yeah. And there are layers to it. Yeah. They could have easily just made Mackenzie's character some Patton-esque, I'm yelling all the time and want to kill every one person and made it very one note. And they didn't do that. They show resignation in Mm -hmm. the character instead of outrage. There are a lot of beats Mm -hmm. to that very short performance Mm -hmm. from Benedict Cumberbatch from blah to uh, (sighs) fuck off. Yeah, he goes through like the whole the whole series of of grief. He goes through all five stages of grief in about two minutes because he's he's sent all these men already. Over the top. And you can imagine that it might have been easier for him to listen if he had sent no one. But he has already committed forces to this. And it's right. only once he reads it and realizes that there's no fucking chance. You're not going to win this. You're not going to do it. That he is like, fine. 
well, what am I going to do now? Like, just stop. I've already sent hundreds of men. Yeah. You know, we're, now we're just going to abandon them and stop the attack. Like, yeah, that, there's definitely a lot going on in that scene. I think uh, Mendez talks about how much he loved these cameos and maybe these cameos because I remember you guys kind of, or at least Liam definitely having a problem with the way they did some of the cameos in Saving Private Ryan, and maybe they did a better job here. Yes. In the writing and the casting, but not only was the deal kind of that all of these more famous actors would sign up for the project, but because they really wanted to do the project and really believed in it, the agreement was they wouldn't have to do any promotion for the film. And also, it was a chance for someone like Benedict Cumberbatch, who is now super famous and has been a leading man and he's now in the MCU and all this stuff, to sort of take a second to just be an actor again but like a and play just a minor role and be able to just do that and go home and be a part of something without right. having all the responsibility of carrying the entire film which i think the sense that i got is that actors like that appreciate that opportunity every once in a while because it doesn't come around that often well anymore. i think these are these aren't necessarily cameos a cameo is like maybe a line or two. These are actual small bit roles, which is much more rare. It would be much more likely that they would get mm. a brief cameo, but each of them, you know, from Andrew Scott to Benedict Cumberbatch, is given that brief moment to tell a little tiny story with this minor character, or minor character in the story, not necessarily in the war. Right. Well, and because this was something that I heard a lot of criticism about when the movie came out was the kind of stunt casty yeah. nature of all of these generals being played by Colin Firth and Benedict Cumberbatch and Mark Strong. But the thing that I like about it and why it works for me in this film is because this is so absolutely from the perspective of two fairly low-level soldiers that when you meet the general the general is going to have the gravitas of a Colin Firth. Right. Mm -hmm. When you meet a colonel, it's going to have the gravitas of a Benedict Cumberbatch. You wouldn't put one of those people as just like, oh, and this is the sergeant who we see every Wednesday. Yeah. It feels momentous in the world and to the audience. That's one of those things that I think works really well for it. If you, you don't have to, be in awe of the general if you actually already as an audience member recognize the general in a sea of people you don't recognize. Right. Beyond that, if you're Sam Mendes and you have that kind of budget, why the fuck wouldn't you cast like this? You need someone who's going to be able to just knock it out of the park in a very, very short period of time. And you can afford and can get Colin Firth. Yeah. Yeah, you should do that because... It's going to give you a better performance. And I mean, he's going to get that criticism of, oh, you're just, you know, putting people in there for the sake of putting them in there. But it's like each one of them gives a very genuine and interesting performance for those few minutes that we see them on screen. Mm -hmm. And therefore, I'm fine with it. It's it's one thing if like it's a cameo and Robert De Niro comes out and hey or whatever, you know, makes a <laughs> makes a thing and then <laughs> continues on. I love your De Niro impression. <laughs> You should do that at parties. That was my bad De Niro impression because I've seen... Which is what comes out as a bad Fonzie? Yes, it does. It totally does. Because I, because I've all I can think of is seeing him in things like Meet the Parents or something where he's almost like a total caricature of himself. Mm -hmm. And it just becomes ugly and cheap. Whereas 
these men are actually giving a damn and doing their best to bring something new to the film rather than just, hi, I'm Benedict Cumberbatch. They're showing up to work. At the very end of the film, when, you know, Schofield gets through the infirmary and after he's stopped the battle and he gets to Blake's older brother, Lieutenant Blake, played up by Richard Madden. That's another example, I think, of an actor really knocking it out of the park with very little. Mm-hmm. While we don't always get told which take of what scene was used in this film, I think it's pretty famous in the trivia that this scene with Richard Madden was the first take. And when they yelled cut, Mendez was like, we got it. I mean, the tears welling up in his eyes. I mean, just that. that I mean, maybe Richard Madden only showed up to work for one day on this movie, but man, he knocked that scene out of the park. I really loved that ending. When I saw that that was who the brother was, I was like, oh, thank God, we're going to get some real emotional closure on this. And that moment where he asks, I would like to write to your mother to tell her about this. And that pause that Richard Madden takes and just that whole scene is just perfect for what you need at the end of this film. You need some kind mm-hmm. of closure because, good God, this guy has been through so much. And he's probably going to die under that tree. Probably from exhaustion. <laughs> from exhaustion, from the hand. Or the hand. From the fractured the skull, from the two concussions within eight yeah. hours. Or possibly to the exposure to an overdose of uric acid from apparently the 100 or so extras who didn't know that tree was part of the set and all peed on that tree throughout the production <laughs> and then at the end <laughs> watched George Mackay walk over and sit down in front of that tree and like a couple of the grips I think were just like looked over each other and he was like man I pissed on that tree so many times <laughs> <laughs> kind of behind the scenes on the end of that oh, film God. And now it's time for the breakdown. It's the point in the show when we ask, what was the objective of this film? Was it on target? And did we like it? Dan, take us away. Behind the scenes on this episode for a second, we were just talking about how it's interesting that we sort of organically weaved our way through the entire plot of this film, which is not something we plan out and not something that we usually do. We kind of just let the conversation go where it's going to go while making sure that we hit the history, etc. But there's a certain flow to this film that just made it feel natural to kind of go through the scenes. I think Mendez's objective here. A lot of this comes directly from him, but, you know, he wanted to pay tribute to his grandfather's stories and his grandfather's experiences in the service and in the war, but also tell that story in not a traditional war film kind of way. I think this was a way to tell an intimate story juxtaposed with the vast scale of the Great War. Again, I talked about sort of the airplane versus Blake's death scene, but there's a lot of that in here where... Without seeing giant artillery barrages or scenes with tons of planes or ships or, you know, sort of you can feel the scale of this war, but it's more from the effect on the actors' faces that you feel the gravity of the bigger picture. So I think that was the objective. I definitely think they were successful in that. We already discussed all this, so I'll be brief, but from the casting to the acting to the dialogue to the production design and on top of it to the very specific and additionally constraining and sort of the extra workload that the whole simulated one shot requires in terms of the actor's preparation, 
the choreography, the fact that, again, the camera is often spinning around all the way. And so even things that are off camera have to look right because they're eventually going to be on camera. All that extra work, I think, here really brought everything together to make you feel like you're there with the characters. But I think that while I respect everyone's opinion and you're allowed to like whatever film you want and whatever type of war film you like, I get a little aggravated when I see the rivet counters and the pedants come after this movie. They're like, the plot was thin and, you know, the, the tank is three days early and like the uniforms are too clean. And I'm like, okay, I didn't give Spielberg a break for putting the log ramps in 180 degrees the wrong direction on the D-Day <laughs> scene. Right? Like that scene is amazing. However, how did you fuck that up when you have all these pictures and it's like pretty important detail? So I'm not cutting this film slack simply because I like it. But I just think that, again, if you're focusing on the Mark II being in that scene in the mud three days too soon, you know, yes, maybe they could have run this message by throwing it out of a plane and they didn't necessarily need runners in this specific situation. Like some people bring that up as a plot hole, which I'm not really even going to break down because I think it's stupid. (laughs) Yes, it's stupid. There's not enough there. I think the story's totally plausible. If you're focusing on those things, I think you're focusing on the wrong things and maybe this film isn't for you. And that's fine, you know, but if the intimacy of Schofield having a moment with the baby and the mother or the metaphor of the transition down the river from, you know, him crawling through the piles of bodies into that angelic hymn at the end, if that's something that throws you off because it's not enough war film for you, then yeah, then this film isn't for you. But for me, I really thought that everything from the score to everything else I just mentioned worked together so well to give me an experience that I find myself, despite the fact that there's death on and off screen, I mean, you can almost smell it in this movie and there really is a a gravity to everything. This is a film that I come back to again and again because it is so well put together and they knock it out of the park so much that I want, I mean, I went to theaters at least two or three times to see this. I want to be there and relive this experience because it feels so real from an emotional standpoint, from an intimacy standpoint. And that's what I really love about this film. Go ahead, Katie, tell us what you thought. I have a confession. Despite being fascinated with World War One and films and books and everything about it, and being a film critic at the time when this movie was released, this was the first time I watched it. <laughs> and I think partially that's because I'm the kind of person where sometimes I get so hyped about something, I'm like, oh, I've got to save it. I've got to save it and have it be like this whole experience and this whole thing. And I wasn't able to make it out to theaters for this one because I got Dunkirk then somebody else got this one on the site. Oof, tough break, man. I liked Dunkirk. We'll talk about that some other time, though. It absolutely lived up to what I expected. I've always really enjoyed Sam Mendes as a director. And I, I mean, everybody loves Roger Deakins. Come on now. It's so well put together. And I think what Mendes is going for here is to give us an idea of what it was like to experience something like this rather than this is exactly what these people went through it's much more about the emotional experience of it and as i said earlier in some ways this very much feels like a horror movie because these young men are being they are courting death 
every second of every day in this kind of experience, in this kind of war. And it's at times incredibly poignant how well it depicts the complicated emotions that people are going to go through when they are in that experience of, you know, you, you watch your friend who you've been friends with for, you know, could be a couple months, could be a couple years, who knows? But you have a very close bond with this person who may not even know that you have a wife and child, but you are emotionally connected to them and their death hits you in a way that's going to last the rest of your life. And then you are expected to pick yourself up and keep on trucking and get the mission done and fight through until the very end. And it's one man's quest to do that because, you know, I love that Schofield is so hesitant about the whole thing in the beginning he's like nah man this sounds like a bad idea let's wait till nighttime to cross no man's land like let's let's delay this this sounds like not good but by the end he is determined he is going to make Mackenzie listen to him and pass this message along and try to save his friend's brother and how well it gets across those emotions and yes sometimes it is a little obvious about it but honestly Anybody could watch this and you don't have any knowledge about World War One whatsoever and still get those emotional beats and still understand it. Like with the kicking over of the ash can that like to us, it seems like a little over the top to be able to say, oh, they were they were recently here. But it hits home for those folks who don't think about this kind of thing and allows them to stay in the moment with us and know what the director's intentions are. Mendez made that comment specifically. He said, I wanted people to be able to enjoy this regardless of whether they knew anything about World War One or not. Right. And especially because American audiences, as I saw egregiously in most of the reviews I, I read from American critics, have no goddamn idea what happened during World War One or what it was like mm -hmm. or anything about it because we just are not educated on stuff like that here because America was not involved in World War One until really close to the end. And... I think Mendez succeeds masterfully. This is a fantastic examination of what that kind of person's life was like. It feels almost like how we talked about uh, They Shall Not Grow Old, in that Peter Jackson's goal is to give folks some perspective on what the real lives of these infantrymen were like. And this feels like a dramatized version of what a runner's life would have been like and allows us to really get into that headspace. Did I like it? Yeah, I liked it a lot. I thought it was really good. And I, I didn't, this is one of those movies that's hard to say, like, I loved it because it's so bleak and at times it's so hard to watch, but I really appreciated it on a level that I don't feel like I often can appreciate films. So all of the work and artistry is right up there on the screen for you to see. And it is, for me at least, really easy to immerse myself in these half a day that this takes place in. I'm kind of glad I hadn't seen it before now, honestly, because getting to have this experience and then talk about it was really, really fun. I can see why, Liam, you don't watch stuff before you uh, cover it on Fright Pub. Yeah, especially if if I know I'm going to get to do it eventually, I'll try not to. Right. But it's, um, yeah, no, that's awesome that you got to watch it for the first time for this show. That makes me happy. Yeah, and I'll definitely watch it again. And I don't watch movies. I don't rewatch a lot of movies like this. And I definitely will watch this one again. So Liam, for once, you're, you're not going to shit on something, I don't think. And I'm so excited <laughs> to hear about it. 
<laughs> Everyone's going to get a break from Liam shitting on things. I don't shit on everything, just on the stuff that had it coming. You absolutely don't, but this, it's like, it's one of the rare instances where I feel like you can really gush about something and feel justified in doing so. I always feel justified in my gushing. (laughs) So yeah, I, I, you know, there's not a lot left to be said about what the objective of this film is. I think, obviously, it was to honor his grandfather and to tell the stories that he heard growing up. Not unlike They Shall Not Grow Old, it also wanted to give an illustration in popular culture to something that we don't have very many good illustrations of, what it was like to be in these trenches, how many fucking bodies were in that mud. You know, like that's not something that you see all the time, pretty much ever, even in previous most visceral depictions of World War One, you don't get this macabre feast for the eyes that you get in in 1917 was it on target absolutely i think this movie is fantastic my son who is soon to be 12 this is his favorite movie that's right and he has been pulling for this movie since we started doing this podcast he has asked me probably once a week when we were going to do 1917 so i was very happy when this won the audience poll to be the next the next one up and he was just absolutely thrilled this was his first r-rated movie that he saw and he saw it in the theater with me and my dad and he doesn't get a whole lot of like getting a chance to be one of the guys kind of moments and i think that was a big one for him was seeing his first r-rated movie with his grandfather and his dad in the theater and it was this fucking amazing movie so yeah, he absolutely loves this. I think this movie's great. I've said most of the things that I have to say about it. Yeah, there's so little to shit on in this movie that when people find things, it is not only baffling, but a, a, an affront to good taste. You're you're showing your ass. <laughs> Take that, Manola Dargas. Yeah, whoever that is. One of the reviewers for the New York Times. She didn't care for this. Yeah, Go, go sit down, person from the New York Times. You're done here. Katie, what are we doing next? Next up, we are doing Charlotte Gray, which is from 2001, directed by Jillian Armstrong, written by Sebastian Falks and Jeremy Brock. Oh, it stars Kate Blanchett and apparently Tom Goodman Hill, who was Hellfire Jack from The War Below, makes a brief appearance. Right. <laughs> uh, he's listed as businessman at party, so we'll have to keep an eye out Ooh. for him. And it is a World War II film about a young Scottish woman who joins the French Resistance to rescue her Royal Air Force boyfriend who is lost in France. So we are getting something completely different next time around. Nice. I think this is our first, well, I know this is our first uh, leading lady film that we've done. We've done female directors before, Mm -hmm. but we haven't done a female lead part yet. So first time for everything. And this is both. This is directed and starring a woman. Nice. Looking forward to it. All right. Well, thanks everyone for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll come back for more. Check out our discussion group on Facebook at Danger Close Podcast Discussion Group. If you want to join in on the conversation, we're coming up on a thousand members there. So it's a pretty busy, active group. And that is also where you will get all the extra info on weapons and airplanes and all that kind of stuff we don't have time to get into here on the podcast. 
We have our team of researchers who put up great posts on Facebook to go through all of that. If you like what we're doing and you want to hear more and listen to some fantasy, sci-fi, and other war-related films, join us on our Patreon. You can go to dangerclosepod.com forward slash support. It's only four bucks a month. You get a brand new episode every month, and we are at 10, 11 plus episodes at this point, so you get a nice little bank of them. Thanks a lot for joining us, and we will talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. Bye.